When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You took calories out of it, you took BMI out of it, that calorie for calorie, BMI for BMI, there was less risk for diabetes, less risk for hypertension in the vegan group compared to the uh, non-vegetarian group. Dr. Roger Schwelt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. I knew that vitamin D was important. And people ask me if I supplement, and admittedly I do if I'm not getting direct sunlight, but I've always had a suspicion that there's more going on than the isolated vitamin D. I was just like, ah, sunlight, probably hitting your skin is better than supplementing. So I tried not to supplement, but I didn't have any evidence that there actually is something going on until I encountered you. So what is it going on in sunlight that is more than vitamin D? Oh, wow. Uh, there's a lot going on in sunlight. There are two aspects that light really uh, helps us. There's the light that comes in through our eyes, and that has a tremendous impact on mood and on our circadian rhythm. And we could spend a long time talking about that. But there's another aspect of light that we're just starting to learn about. There was a, a great research paper that was just recently published by a couple of authors, uh, Dr. Russell Ryder, who is uh, very esteemed. He's actually the editor of uh, the journal Melatonin and um, a, a physicist. Which was very shocking for me that it is yeah. generated in the skin by sunlight. I always thought yes. of it as the go to sleep thing. Exactly. And, uh, and another guy by the name of, of Scott uh, Zimmerman. And what they are showing, what, what they're essentially saying here is that we know without a shadow of doubt, we have the data that shows that melatonin is, if, number one, a, a, a huge antioxidant. It's more powerful than, than vitamin E. It's what actually- What is melatonin? Is it a hormone? It, it's, in a sense it is, because we know that it's secreted by the pineal gland and it, and it goes into the circulation at night. And we know that looking at light at night can shut that down and that's not a good thing. But melatonin is a very, very powerful antioxidant and it's made in the mitochondria of our cells at orders of magnitude higher than what we would get in, in the pineal gland mm -hmm. in, in the brain. And so what they're proposing in this, based on the data and the biological um, uh, data that they've seen, is that specifically near-infrared radiation. So what is near-infrared radiation? That sounds scary. It, it's, it's a portion of the, of the energy coming from the sun. Mm which comes through the atmosphere, much better than ultraviolet uh, radiation, by the way. And is it able, comes through the atmosphere better? It comes through the atmosphere better. So uh, let's back up a little bit. There, uh, the sun uh, is giving off radiation and, it, and it's from short wave all the way to long wave. One aspect of that broad spectrum is a very narrowed area called visible spectrum. That's where we see red, green, you know, the colors of the rainbow. To the to one side of red is this whole infrared spectrum. How do I explain that? If you were to go outside, and we're right here in sunny, sunny Southern California, and just have a shirt on, and you stand with your back to the sun, 
or let's put it this way. If I were to say, close your eyes and I would spin you around uh, and then have you stop, you would be able to feel where the sun is. Mm. And the reason why you'd be able to feel that, even though the, the shirt is protecting you from the visible spectrum, is that that near infrared radiation is penetrating through your shirt into your skin, past your epidermis, into your dermis, and it's actually stimulating the heat receptors in your skin to say, this is where it's coming from. It's the same thing that happens when you stand in front of a fire. Um, you could be wearing clothes, but if you sit too close to that fire, you're gonna feel that heat. Mm. That's near infrared radiation. And coming off the fire? Coming off the fire, absolutely. Oh. And that, it's that particular wavelength of light that these scientists believe somehow is stimulating the mitochondria to, to make melatonin. We, we know very well that it makes melatonin. So why would that be important? Why would you wanna have melatonin being made in the mitochondria. Think of the mitochondria as a engine in a car, the type of engine that uses gasoline, mm. not an electrical engine like you might see in an electric car. The thing about an engine in a car is it's, it's designed to, to make locomotion, to spin the tires. But a byproduct of that engine is heat. You know, obviously engines are hot. And so what but the problem is if you don't take care of that heat either with the radiator or with the oil, that engine is gonna seize up and it's gonna stop. And that's the same situation that we have in the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. Everyone laughs when I say that because everyone remembers that from school. But in the process of making ATP, which is the energy source of the cell, it makes these things called hydroxy radicals, which are very dangerous molecules. You don't want them in the mitochondria. They only have to travel a very short distance before they'll run into proteins and they will destroy the proteins. So you really don't want these things hanging around. So how do you mop up these hydroxy radicals, this reactive oxygen species? Melatonin. Melatonin does a great job. Glutathione is very powerful. People talk about you know, glutathione supplementation and NAC and all of this stuff. Melatonin actually upregulates that whole system. Does it just envelop the it reactive does. species? Yeah, it has. It, we can get into chemistry, but it has uh, side groups and arms on this melatonin molecule that just mops it up and, <laughs> and eliminates it. So um, think about melatonin in your mitochondria like the, the coolant system in your engine. If, if your coolant system in your engine is not working very well and you start coming up uh, the Hollywood Hills, what's going to happen to your car? It's going to overheat. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what we're seeing, not only in America in terms of disease, but we're, we saw a very good demonstration of that with COVID-19. Um, Americans, uh, wet people in the West, developed countries, they don't get enough sunlight. And uh, Okay, before we yeah. get into COVID, let's start breaking yeah. this down. So the first yeah. thing that freaked me out was that, because yeah. I had heard that there were... Um, that there are cells in the body that have photoreceptors that you wouldn't think would have a sensitivity to light. And I was like, okay, this has got to be like a vestige of something yeah. from when we were cells just floating. I was like, okay, there's no way that we're using it now. Yeah. And then I heard you say that there's actually parts of the light spectrum that can penetrate your skull. Yes. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, exactly. So uh, how, how much of light is penetrating through things that we're not thinking about because I think of sunlight as sort of stopping at a topical level Correct. on my skin, but in reality it can penetrate bone. Correct. Things that are longer wavelength can penetrate through solid objects much better. I'll give you an example. You're pulling up to the stoplight. Some teenagers in a car pull up next to you playing that stuff they call music. 
okay? What do you hear? It's boom, boom. You don't hear the high frequency. The low frequency is able to go through their car, into your car, shake the steering wheel. It's because it's low frequency. It's the same thing with, um, if you know, we don't have it a lot down here in Southern California, but we have uh, thunderstorms. When you're very far away from that lightning, the sound that you hear is thunder. What is typically that you're hearing? It's that low rumble because that low rumble frequency can penetrate so far. And it's exactly the same thing. When we have low frequency infrared, near infrared light coming from the sun, it has no problem penetrating the atmosphere, has no, pen no problem penetrating the clothes that you're wearing, has no problem penetrating deep down. There's some studies that say, you know, maybe a centimeter or two. There's other studies that seem to indicate up to eight centimeters. That's, think about, think about if I were to go eight centimeters deep to your skin, mm -hmm. all over your body. There's a very small fraction of your body that's still in that shadow. Uh, a lot of the cells of your body would be amenable to exposure that, to that type of radiation. Mm. Man, so this yeah. kind of stuff, this is why if I can avoid supplementation, I will. There's just so many things that we don't know yet and we're constantly getting like yes. these bits of information. And I know that a lot of this stuff has been known sort of anecdotally for a long time. You've got photos, was it Florence Nightingale that realized during World War I that it was like, hey, if you put the soldiers, wounded soldiers out in the sunlight, they heal faster. Yes. And so we've had sort of a, an intuition around this stuff, but now as the data comes out and we yep. realize just how much is going on, it's anything that you can sort of get in its natural state strikes me as better. So if I followed what you just said, yeah. all right, you have an engine, it's prone to overheating, the sun gets in, it triggers the production of melatonin, which goes in and mops us up and acts as sort of the cooling system. Yes. Ironic, given that it's the sun. sun yeah. <laughs> um, but that, like, is that what's going on? And then I think as we explain that, we can get into COVID and like why it matters so much. That's one of the things that's going on. But, you know, one of the things that we've discovered as scientists is that, um, the mind and the body are a lot more connected than we thought they were. So one of the other things that light does is when you are exposed to light, that light that comes into your eyes, it hits the retina and we know that it goes back to the back of the brain and that's where the occipital lobes are and that's where you can visualize uh, light and you can see it acutely and consciously. But from anatomy, we know that there are neurons that come from the back of your eye that don't project to the back where you see vision. They go to other places of the brain, other parts of the brain that are involved with emotion, other parts of the body that are uh, brain that are involved with mood. Um, something called the perihabenular nucleus. That's a very technical term. Just going to say that. Yeah, but if you <laughs> if you look that up, this is what they believe is is implicated in uh, in seasonal affective disorder known as SAD, S-A-D, Seasonal Affective Disorder. It affects about 5 to 10% of the population. People who live at northern latitudes don't get a lot of sun, especially in the wintertime. And what they notice is that they become more depressed. That depression can have an effect on health as well. And so uh, getting them enough sunlight, getting them enough light, this is light that you don't necessarily see consciously. This goes to a part of the brain that's unconscious vision of light. And that has an effect as well on overall health as well. Yeah. Okay. So that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the body, the mind, they're far more connected. Light is playing a way deeper role in all of this. What are some of the elements of that, that we're misunderstanding that we're just now beginning to grapple with? Yeah. Well, number one, that vitamin D that you can't package the sun in a, in a capsule of vitamin D. I think it would be a mistake to say that, well, I'm taking my vitamin D supplementation. I don't need to go out into the sun. 
So vitamin D is produced in the dermis uh, when ultraviolet radiation from the sun comes in. Ultraviolet radiation generally comes in between 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, and it's at that point, because the sun is directly overhead and ultraviolet has a really hard time getting through the atmosphere, hmm. that it's, the sun basically has to be right overhead right. for that to come through. Um, Vitamin D is an immunomodulator. I mean, we've done a lot of studies in science uh, in the last hundred years looking at vitamin D and its impact on bone and calcium. Uh, and we've come up with these levels in the government to say this is how much vitamin D you need to have. But what we're now starting to understand is that vitamin D is far more important than just bone, bone uh, metabolism. It's involved with immunomodular therapy. There was, there was just a study that was published two months ago that showed that people who supplement with 2,000 international units of vitamin D daily over a period of five years had all of the autoimmune conditions reduced. Psoriasis, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, you name it, scleroderma, all of those just basically went down with, with supplementation. Mm. Um, and, and so I believe that when we don't spend enough time outside in the sun, we're going to get levels of vitamin D that are going to drop. We're not necessarily going to see rickets because you don't need, you don't need a lot of vitamin D to prevent rickets, mm -hmm. but you might be seeing a more nuanced presentation of vitamin D deficiency uh, in, in those types of, of patients uh, because you need higher levels of vitamin D to prevent those sorts of things. Okay, so yeah. going back to light's relationship to illness, wound healing, COVID. Yeah. Is it all around this idea of the overheating engine, the production of melatonin, or is there is it the immunomodulation of the vitamin D unknowns? Like it's it's both. Um, I think it's probably all of the above. There was a very interesting study uh, that was published out of the University of Edinburgh, and they had the same question that you had. Is vi we see that vitamin D is attached to, we'll bring up COVID-19 in this case, as you mentioned, because that's an illness that, that, that's involved with, with stress and, and oxidative stress, in fact. And what they found was when they looked at the United States in the wintertime, the sun is pretty low. People south of the southern border of Tennessee can probably still get enough vitamin D even in the wintertime. Here in Southern California, we could probably get enough vitamin D in the wintertime. But if you're far north of that, you're not going to get it. What they found was that when they completely eliminated the people that could get enough vitamin D with sunlight in the wintertime and just looked, looked at those that could not, there was still a connection with where they lived in the latitude and their mortality to COVID-19. What I mean to say is, is the further north you lived, the higher the mortality was. And the further south you lived, the less the mortality was in a population that really wasn't getting vitamin D from the sun at all. So what does that tell you? And, and they came to the same conclusion as, as your mind would, is that there's something else in the sun that's modulating this natural history of COVID-19 in these patients. So um, you can make the point and say that COVID-19, out of many things that it does, also has an impact in the redox area, which is oxidative stress. And so in fact, if sunlight is causing a improvement in your mitochondria because of the near infrared radiation and the melatonin production it could be mitigating one aspect of that disease COVID-19 and causing uh, improved outcomes okay very interesting now when you look at some of the other confounding variables so obesity seems to have a huge implication yeah. is there is there anything tied there in terms of oxidative stress yeah. or 
Yeah, absolutely. So people who are more obese have more inflammation. We know that right from the start. Now, is there yeah. a one-to-one -one relationship between oxidative stress and inflammation, or are they different animals? Um, they, are, they can be different, but generally speaking, you will see them correlated with each other because of the, because of the, uh, the diseases that cause them. So we see diabetes associated with obesity, mm -hmm. obesity with inflammation, diabetes with oxidative stress. So uh, we do see them correlated. It's hard to tease them out. But interestingly, when we talk about lights, Obviously, the more obese you are, the harder it is for those uh, that light to sort of get deeper in. All right, let me see if I can track oxidative stress here across many episodes that I've done now where different people are talking about different ways that sure. oxidative stress happens. So uh, your diet obviously can create oxidative stress by going in and causing, by using oxidative stress, by increasing, say, your glucose intake, mm -hmm. your sugar intake, which turned to glucose in the bloodstream, uh, that you're creating an, in, uh, an elevated level of oxidative stress. Yep. So oxidative stress, what is happening at, a, at the level of chemistry? What's level. actually getting kicked off yep. that has to be, that melatonin has to mop up? Okay, so <laughs> the, now you're getting into biochemistry. So for those of you in, the, in your audience that are familiar, um, when you eat proteins, glucose, or fats, these all get broken down into a two-carbon molecule called acetyl-CoA. Acetyl Acetyl-CoA then goes into the mitochondria, or it's there in the mitochondria, and it goes through something called the citric acid cycle. As it goes around and around the citric acid cycle, um, things become oxidized, and basically the product of this are reduced electrons. Okay, so this what does it like, mean to be oxidized? Oxidized, yes. Yeah. So something is where uh, electrons are being taken away. Okay. Okay, so in other words... And that's um, bad news. I think of oxidation as bad. No, oxidation is just the way we metabolize. Okay, so Absolutely. thank God you're alive. You have oxygen. Yay! Yeah. But like it, rust is oxidation. It is. So, so let's, let's take a bigger picture. Energy from the sun hits the plants. And what happens is uh, the plants take in carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Carbon dioxide has a carbon and an O2. And what happens? We know the plants give off oxygen and it keeps onto the carbon. So this is why the plants can grow, they're carbon-based. But these, this is very reduced carbon, so carbon with a bunch of hydrogens around it. We eat the plants, very reduced hydrogens, and what happens is we get the energy from the sun because the way that we do that is we take, they take those electrons away and they put oxygen on there. That's how we're oxidizing the carbon. And so what do we breathe off? CO2. So what gets left behind are these very reduced electrons, very reduced um, hydrogens. And so now imagine, uh, you know, like you know, when you go out to Hoover Dam or the, you have these dams and basically it's a flow. That's what happens. You have these very high energy electrons up here. And uh, what, what basically happens is, is as those electrons go down the electron transport chain, energy is being taken away, which then creates ATP. Energy in the form of? Energy uh, in the form of the, uh, the electrons. So the, the electrons have a specific energy to them. So the, the bottom line here is that when you get to the bottom, there's no more places for these electrons to go. Something has to take these electrons. They've been stripped of all their energy. And so the only, the only thing left that will accept these electrons is oxygen. And that's the reason why we have to breathe. And that's the reason why we have to get oxygen into our body because the moment we can't get oxygen into our body, these electrons have nowhere to go. Everything backs up, no more energy being made, patient dies. That's the bottom line. So you've got this oxygen molecule. These electrons pop on. The, electron, the oxygen then turns into water. That's great. 
Four electrons pop onto oxygen, you make water. Here's the problem. When you eat a lot of carbohydrates and eat a lot of food, this, this ramp starts to move so quickly, it's not efficient. It's not being done exactly the way it happens. And these electrons up here jump down and pop onto the oxygen molecule. And now instead of oxygen making water, you got oxygen making superoxide. That's, re that's, a, that's a reactive oxygen species. Why is it, it makes, making superoxide? Because too many electrons are hitting it at once? Well, what happens is, is that these electrons are not being uh, managed in, a, in the appropriate way with the enzymes. You're, you're, the amount of substrate is, is now going past what the enzymes can take, and so things are just going everywhere and it's leaking. And so you might get, instead of an oxygen getting four electrons and making water, it might just get one electron and it makes superoxide. If it gets two, it makes hydrogen peroxide. If it gets three, it makes a hydroxy radical. And so what happens is these things are, basically they have one little electron hanging out or, or two or three. And these things are so reactive that they have to move only a few angstroms one way or another and they're gonna bump into a protein and damage it. And that's, that's why I equate reactive oxygen species to heat in the engine, because you're using combustion to move that piston up and down and you're making locomotion, but the byproduct of that is heat. And unless you take that heat away, it's gonna seize the engine up. And that's why it's so important. I mean, it, I, I can't stress this enough. Alzheimer's disease, um, uh, autism, diabetes, a lot of these diseases that we see in society have been tied to mitochondrial damage from reactive oxygen species. It's really important. Whew, okay, so yeah. I'm gonna keep going with this electron transport chain. Okay. For me, when yeah. I can picture it and I can understand it, it becomes so much easier to comply yeah. in terms of my lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, the part in all of that that I don't understand is what is it about carbohydrates that overwhelms the electron transport chain? You know, the, now we're getting into some, uh, uh, some of the nuances in terms of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are the, the fuel, the predominant fuel of the brain. And so the body must always have carbohydrates available. Now, of course, when you fast, the brain can use ketones. It's, it's possible, but it would rather use uh, carbohydrates. Um, the problem with carbohydrates when it's given too rapidly, okay, is that you have to make insulin and insulin has to, has to manage uh, glucose. The, the problem with glucose is, is that, uh, in general, if you have high levels of glucose in your blood, it's gonna cause what we call glycolation of protein, and that's gonna destroy the protein. So glucose has to be pretty well regulated, and we know that, just now we're talking about diabetes and glucose and things of that nature. So uh, insulin has to be increased when high levels of glucose go up, and that insulin shuttles that glucose into the cells. The glucose then is broken down very quickly and it's probably out of all of the, the different types of, of food products, carbohydrates, protein, uh, and glucose, or glucose, fat. protein, and fats, um, it's the one that'll get shuttled into that uh, pathway the fastest. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so we can just, the body, because the body likes to use it or it's easiest to use, it can 
that's the one that you can overwhelm the system with. Like, hey, I can just keep putting this in, putting this in, putting this in. Yeah. Uh, which explains why the body has to have a response to become insulin uh, resistant so that, yes. yo, if you just keep shoving this in, we're going to have all these... Are they all called free radicals? We certainly have yeah. all kinds of problematic things because we're not getting the four electrons on the oxygen molecule. And so whether it's one, two, three, it's just, it's madness. Correct. Chaos is ensuing. Correct. Okay, that's interesting. That's the first time I've really understood. I've, I've heard sort of other downstream reasons why we would want to be insulin resistant. For instance, in going into uh, the winter, of course, you'd want to become insulin resistant so you can start storing fat and keep the fat locked in so that you can survive the famine. Yes. Amazing, makes sense. Yeah. But in terms of what's going on that makes the body go, yo, pump the brakes, that's the first time I've really understood that. Okay, yeah. so we've got this ability to by eating too many carbohydrates, even though the body loves glucose and it's a really easy to use fuel source, it's a system that can be overwhelmed and you're in the middle of overwhelming that system. You are kicking, oh my God, I think this is actually clicking in my brain. So uh, you're overwhelming the system with carbohydrates. You are also getting obese. Yeah. Now you have this double whammy of you have overwhelmed your electron transport chain you're creating these um reactive Oxygen species, species yeah. thank you yeah which are damaging proteins if they come into contact with it correct and you've layered on actual adipose tissue so sunlight now can't penetrate as deeply as it might need to that may be one of the reasons yeah possibly hypothesis yeah. hypothesis yeah around uh and by doing that we're not able to the sun light is not able to create as much melatonin as would be needed to mop things up. So now you've overwhelmed the system and broken the ability to clean up the overwhelm. That's correct. And so now yeah. you're in a system where to go back to the car analogy, you're running so hot that when the COVID virus is introduced, and you, have to you and this is where you're going to have to fill me in, yeah. then what happens? So I understand that I've overwhelmed the system with free radicals. My electron transport chain is not doing what it, Well, the enzymes are overwhelmed and cannot connect the electrons appropriately to the oxygen so that we can expel it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't necessarily understand why the free radicals, is it just they're breaking too many things? No. I'll, I'll, yeah. So I understand what you're saying. So... Um, You've, you the part that you have to understand with this is that when you have uh, too much oxidative stress in the cell, that damages the cell in a way that can cause problems down the road and, and actually physically damage the cell. So, so let's set up, set, let me set up exactly what you said. So the analogy would be is you're running your car hot, but it's still running. You're still able to go and you're on a, a level. Now the COVID-19 hill comes and now you have to start going up the hill and that's when the, the engine overheats and you shut down and the engine seizes. What is it about COVID-19 that's a hill is, is the question really. Yep. So um, unfortunately, the SARS-CoV-2 virus spike protein interacts with something called the ACE2 receptor. Now it, it makes it sound like that, the, that on the surface of our cells, there's this receptor called ACE2 and it's made to just have this spike protein come into it. No, it, it wasn't made for that. It has a completely different purpose. And the ACE2 protein, the ACE2 enzyme, is actually designed to take pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidant molecules and turn them into antioxidant molecules. 
And that's something that's, that's really critical to understand. There's a, a substance called angiotensin II, which is a pro-oxidant, pro-oxidative uh, stress uh, um, substance which raises your blood pressure, does all the bad things you could possibly imagine. ACE2 takes this and converts it into angiotensin 1-7, which has the complete opposite effect. It reduces blood pressure. It's a antioxidant. It's amazing. I mean, you take something that's bad and you turn it into something good. That's like a, that's like a double whammy. That's like, you know, on the, on the basketball floor, going down, stealing the ball, and then going down and scoring a dunk. That's like a four-point switch, they call it, right? That's exactly what ACE2 does. The problem is, is that when the virus attaches to the ACE2 receptor, it knocks it out. And so what cells have this ACE2 receptor? It's the bronchial epithelial cells. It is the vascular cells. The vascular cells, uh, the, what's called the endothelium. It's the coating of the, of the blood vessels. And when you have an infection that's so severe and it spills over into your blood, now the virus is going throughout your blood and it's infecting all of these endothelial cells with all these nice ACE2 receptors that are uh, available to it. What happens then is the, the virus infects the endothelial cell, knocks out the ACE2 receptor, knocks out the ACE2 enzyme, pro-antioxidants go up, antioxidants go down, you have a, a, a massive change in the oxidative stress in that cell, and now what you have is damage to the cell. Now, the problem with the endothelial cell, and this brings in another aspect, is the endothelial cell, the purpose of the endothelial cell is to protect the, 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 the proteins in the blood from seeing fibrin. Uh, put it this way, if you know when you get cut, you, you form a clot. The reason why you form a clot is because the contents of your blood are seeing the tissue in your body. And whenever they see tissue in your body, they're designed to clot. What the endothelial cell surface does is it protects them so that they never see the inside of you, mm. if you will. When those endothelial cells get damaged, they start to break down and they start to show what's underneath them. And when the blood sees that, it doesn't like that and it tries to clot. Mm. And uh, that's exactly what we're seeing. There, there's something called von Willebrand's factor. We're getting very technical here, but von Willebrand's factor is underneath the endothelium. It's like it's hiding it. When that gets broken down, the, end, the von Willebrand's factor comes out and you get very, these clots. And, and when they do the autopsies in these COVID-19 patients, they have nine times the amount of clots. Oh. Nine times the amount of clots that we see in, in someone that died of the flu or somebody that died of uh, something else. Because the COVID virus is breaking down the endothelial, endothelial exposing the flesh. Correct. And clot, clot, clot. Exactly. And there was a study that was published that showed 555. That's how I remember it. It's such mm -hmm. an easy number to remember. 555% more von Willebrand's factor in the blood of COVID-19 patients wow. that were severe in the hospital compared to controls. Okay, so... That's why it's a hill. Yes. Okay, so I've, the ACE2 receptor is breaking my antioxidants and anything that I'm doing that is pro-oxidative stress, now, boom, I'm gonna be in real trouble because I've already, as you said, walked right up to the edge of the cliff. Correct. And now I'm in more danger. It makes the ACE, the, sense the, ACE2, the, the ACE2 receptor is, is, is a receptor, yes, for the, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but much more importantly, it's an enzyme that is keeping the oxidative balance in your cells in optimum control. Mm. And when the virus comes and knocks it out, when it binds, it denatures the protein enough so that it can no longer do its job. And so for that cell, uh, it, it, that, that's, that's a problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Very, very interesting.
Um, I'm very curious. So I understand now how light is playing its role. I understand at least the hypothesis about why um, poor diet and obesity are playing their role. Talk to me about sleep. Hmm. Yeah. What, what are we doing in sleep that is just, from an immune perspective, so critical? So we can tie right back into what we were just talking about. Sleep is when you're you know, closing your eyes and you are in bed at night and it's dark. That is exactly what is necessary for your pineal gland in your brain to be secreting melatonin. Obviously, you're that's inside. That's in my bloodstream, right? That's in your Versus bloodstream. Versus in the mitochondria Correct. where all the damage is happening. Correct. So this is the backup plan. And we actually knew about this for years, but we discovered the backup plan before we figured out what the real plan is. Mm. The real plan is being outside in the sun, cooling down the mitochondria, ironically, like you said, with sunlight, um, and making sure that the melatonin is there to mop up these oxidative stress uh, uh, products. But at night, the sun is down. So what are you going to do then? You're not making uh, you're not making melatonin from infrared radiation because it's nighttime. Because there is no photons going into your eyes, you close your eyes there is nothing that's going to shut down the melatonin production from the pineal gland into the blood. So this is part of the master clock that's telling your body it's time to go to sleep. We're now bathing you with melatonin. The melatonin gets taken up by the cells and it gets pumped into the mitochondria to do what it, what it was doing during the day. It's just not being made there on site. It's being made in the pineal gland and it's going throughout the body. So sleep from just that standpoint is, is extremely important. But, Meaning there's enough pumped into the cell to yeah. be valuable from an um, oxidative stress perspective. Absolutely. And, yeah. and we have plenty of studies yeah. that show that people who don't get that melatonin at night, people who are not sleeping well at night, I mean, it's a risk factor for, for cancer, certainly mm. for breast cancer, uh, but a number of other cancers as well. Because of oxidative stress or something else? Well, uh, we believe that that is, that is part of what it's related to. We're not exactly sure exactly the, the definite connection, but there's a number of molecules that have been shown to uh, go up and down with circadian rhythm. So, so now we're sort of zooming, let's zoom out at the 30,000 foot level. Melatonin is just one aspect of sleep. Yeah, I was going to say I'm back to, because I was about to say, can I supplement my way to success with melatonin? You can't. But of course, getting at the... No. Natural way is probably better because there's probably a lot more going on than just melatonin. Absolutely. And the way I like to describe it is I used to have a friend that used to work at Disneyland, but he wasn't there during the day. He was there at night. You may not know this, but Disneyland is just as busy at night as it is during the day. I'm not surprised. Yeah. They, I mean, to, to have Disneyland ready to open up in the morning to, to do what it needs to do during the day, that the gardeners come in at night. Mm you know, changing out things, cleaning things. Don't they have like a whole catacomb system they below? Do. Yeah. They do, they do. So and so to be able to do that, and of course the human body is far more complicated than Disneyland. I mean, Disneyland's complicated. We're far more complicated yeah. than Disneyland. So for us to be able to do in the day, we have to have processes that are regulated at night. The, the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain is the conductor of the orchestra. It says, okay, we're gonna start now. Now, if you've got the oboe, the violin, and the tuba, and they're, they're playing the, exactly the right music, but at the wrong time, it's gonna sound like a cacophony of mm. nonsense. Every, all of these things have to be playing at the same time. And the master clock, which is in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the brain, is, is telling all of the clocks of the body. There's clocks in the liver, clocks in the heart, clocks in, all of these things. This is the regulation. Now we're gonna start now. Imagine if you were the gardener at Disneyland and decided to go in at 10 o'clock in the morning. 
it wouldn't work. People right. are lining up for Space Mountain and you're changing flowers. That, that's not going to work, right? I mean, it'll work. You'll live. I mean, people will make money at Disneyland, but it's not optimal. And if you want to be optimal, what we're finding out is that there are certain times of the day that is optimal for you to do certain things. And it's optimal for you to sleep at least for seven hours and to get that sleep where your circadian rhythm is telling you it's time to sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, you, your circadian rhythm may be off. And that's a whole other discussion. We may have to talk about how we shift that in the right place. But if you're not sleeping at the right time, if you're not eating at the right time, um, you're not getting the optimal benefit of your circadian rhythm. We have technology today that allows us to eat 24 hours a day. Mm. We have technology today that we can turn night into day if we want. We can work 24-7. There's gamers that, that do that, right? And to, they, they go straight for 48 hours and they die. Um, and, and so what we're finding out is that technology, even though it allows us to do certain things, it may not be optimal. Mm. Okay, so we, we've got the master clock, it's orchestrating all of this stuff. Um, what exactly is going on in terms of the immune system, in terms of the um, brain? Like I know the brain shrinks and it allows the lymphatic system to clear things out. Yes. Um, what are some of the, the heavy hitters? Okay, so if, you were to, if I were to say, what are all the systems that are affected by the circadian rhythm? I mean, I could list off 20 things. I mean, leptin, ghrelin, these are uh, enzymes that are used in, in hunger and satiety. Cortisol, melatonin, we just talked about those. Um, uh, glucose, insulin. I mean, these are major players. These aren't like some small things. T to give you an idea, they did a study where they took uh, college students and they said, okay, let's do an all-nighter. How many times have we done an all-nighter in college, right? right? So uh, just one night. And in that one night, they measured 100 different uh, proteins. And they saw major drastic changes in not only the amplitude, but the timing of those things. And things that were involved with uh, insulin and glucose metabolism, but also things that were seen in terms of fighting cancers and, uh, and immunological and, and uh, surveillance. So you can imagine just one night of doing an all-nighter, all of these things can be affected. But the part I still can't understand is what, what is happening at the cellular level? It's just miscoordination? So let's, let's go through this. Light goes in, hits the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, then has a pathway that goes back to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And it's that light, that neuron, that actually physically changes. We can get into clock genes and things of that nature where uh, it takes a certain amount of time for something to become uh, methylated. And then as a result of that, there's a backfeed loop, which then causes the transcription of the gene. To, and it takes about 24 hours. Actually, for this sort of feedback loop to happen, when light comes in, it slows that down. The clock slows down, and what happens? Uh, let's just take a, an everyday example. We're up on our iPad or iPhone at night, and the light from the the device is going into our eye, and it's delaying our circadian rhythm. So that instead of dim light melatonin onset happening at nine o'clock, which is when it should be happening, it's now happening at eleven o'clock. And as a result of that, we don't feel sleepy until 12 o'clock at night when we should have been feeling sleepy at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and so as a result of that, everything starts to shift. It actually does. The and in fact, if I can throw in one thing I've heard yeah. you say yeah. so that 
I can reinforce it myself and the audience can hear it. Yeah. Uh, sleep before midnight is more likely to produce growth hormone. Growth hormone yes. has all kinds of consequences. Yes. And so just by disrupting your clock, you disrupt the hormone secretion in that case. Yes. Since hormones are signaling molecules, the body's not getting the right signal. And so we begin to understand how these things degrade. Okay. Absolutely. So, so why sense. do bad things happen is because, let's look at it the other way. Every, let's, let's take the assumption that everything is perfectly timed in a clock to get everything done. Just like at Disneyland. Uh, there's some guy that's figuring out that I need the gardener in here at, uh, at 2 in the morning. I need uh, you know, the cash taken out of the cash registers at this hour. And it's all planned out by some brain that's figured this out. Now, all of a sudden, if you, if you have these things coming at different times, if everything is perfectly designed to get the exact best outcome, then anything other than that is going to fall off the, right. the mark. And so that's maybe what's going on. And just to finish up that thought is if you are delaying the circadian rhythm, now when you go to, want to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, you, you can't because your circadian rhythm is telling you when you, when, you, when you feel sleepy. And so now you have some insomnia, okay? But on the other end of it, you're supposed to be waking up at six in the morning, but because your circadian rhythm is delayed till eight o'clock, now what happens? You're, you're getting up early, you're not getting full sleep, and instead of that cortisol spike in the morning that you need for the day coming at eight o'clock in the morning, it's now gonna be coming at 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and because you now eat in the morning always at seven o'clock or eight o'clock, and now that, that timing is off in the morning, we know that insulin is the most sensitive. So in other words, the best time to We're eat is the morning. We're most sensitive to insulin? Correct. Got it. Uh, and, and not so much at night. And we can talk that's about so weird. We can talk about time restricted feeding. Do you know that like at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's the time of day that you, generally speaking, are the most coordinated, in terms of uh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. They, as a pulmonologist, I do pulmonary function tests. What's pulmonology? Pulmonology is the lungs, study of the right? lungs. Yeah. Got it. So uh, I have patients all the time that come in. They've got COPD. Uh, that means they can't blow air out very well or they've got restrictive disease, they can't take a deep breath in. One of the ways we have of measuring that is having them blow into a tube hooked up to a computer and measuring all these things. Well, this may be a surprise to you, but I may get slightly different results if I do that PFT in the morning than if I do that in the afternoon. Hmm. And that's just because of circadian rhythm. We, we, there is definitely something that happens on a, on a daily basis that uh, our, our bodies are a little different at different times of the day because it's expecting things at different times of the day. It's, it's so really weird. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. And whether we are expecting it or, oh God, somebody just said, I thought this was a really interesting way to think of it, that the lungs are not, uh, they didn't develop as an expectation of oxygen. They are the expectation of oxygen. Like that, and I heard another sort of similar statement about the way that we connect with each other, that we have a nature that requires nurture, that there, that, that there is, it's such a, an interconnected loop, it's almost impossible to know which came first. So instead of saying which came first, the lung or the oxygen, it's like they exist because of each other, especially if you start thinking of like the plants as sort of the, the world's lung in the way that it's taking in carbon dioxide and breathing out oxygen, and then other things begin to develop what we now know as lungs. It's so crazy. And I know that I drag people into the weeds a lot, but I, as somebody who did not take biochem, yeah. I find it really interesting to oh, actually begin to understand this stuff. It's, it's fascinating. I, I, I hate to bring this up, but have you ever studied the double slit experiment? Yes, and I actually considered bringing this up to you. Okay. Uh, so beyond obsessed yeah. with this idea, yeah. um, do you want to explain it to people? 
<laughs> oh, the double slit experiment. Okay. Um, it all boils down to whether or not light is a particle or, or a, a wave. And they behave differently um, depending on if you have a double slit. Because you can imagine if I had an Uzi uh, shooting bullets and uh, there was two slits, you would see on the other side of that wall uh, a collection of bullets that were in two slits. But light is not just uh, photons, they're also waves. When you get down to that small of a particle, they behave as waves. And anytime you have waves going through two slits, they will, as they go through, they will interact with each other. And when the, when the peaks come together, you'll have a higher peak. And when, uh, the troughs, when, when a peak and a trough come together, they'll counteract each other out and they'll have nothing. And so what you see on the far wall is instead of two, two banks, of uh, particles, you'll see something called an interference pattern. Yep. And it's like a bunch of, it looks like a barcode. So, so this was the experiment. They say, okay, is light a wavelength or is light a particle? And the answer will be, let's put up two slits and see what happens. Well, um, if it's a particle, it'll go through one. If it's a wave, it'll go through both. Correct, exactly. So that they've set up the two slits. That's what they're thinking. Exactly. Hey, yes. it's going to be one or the other. So that so what happened was is that they they saw uh, of course they saw a um, uh, interference pattern, but then they decided to say, okay, let's do it this way. Well, maybe the particles are interacting with each other. So let's shoot particles through one at a time. So when they shot it through one at a time, they saw an interference pattern. It's like. How can that possibly be? How can a, a particle going through one at a time interact with itself and then not interact with itself? They say something's happening here. And, and here is the key, is they set up a detector at the slit because they wanted to actually see which slit the particle was going through. Well, when they did that, it stopped behaving that this way. This is the part that breaks my fucking brain. <laughs> it, exactly. I mean, it, it started to... It suddenly went through only one. Correct. If you measure it, yes. it only goes through one. Yes. If and you don't measure it, it goes through both. Okay, I'm and, sorry, what? Yeah, and, and then it gets even weirder than that because they have something called uh, uh, the erasure uh, experiments. These were done about 20 years ago. So this experiment that we were just talking about, this was done 100 years ago, and they figured this out. Um, about 20 years ago, they actually set up the experiment using some uh, mirrors so they could split the beam and they could have what they call entangled photons, which are supposed to act exactly the same. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what they found. And they found that not only does the photon know if you're looking at it, but it also knows if you're about to look at it. Oh my God. So it starts to behave the way that it should have behaved because you looked at it, but it behaves that way before. Because what they did was they split off two entangled photons and before the photon went through the slit and was detected, the other one went to another detector and it, and it behaved the correct way before it was looked at. It's, I heard that yes. same thing explained in a different way. So you could, and I think it's the same idea, but let's say that it's a photon that left um, a distant star 900 million years ago. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's already coming at you as a wave or a particle. Correct. And, but de depending on whether you measure it or not, it will be cohesive, even though that meant that that decision had to have been made 900 million years ago. Correct. That's so freaky. Yeah. That's, yeah. So the question is, is are, are we changing? So the, so the obvious one would be, are, is the fact that a, a human being with knowledge of the system, mm -hmm. because that's, it all boils down to, is somebody observing it with knowledge of the system? 
is somebody observing it with knowledge of the system changing the way that light is uh, seeming to be behaved, or yeah. is the light changing us? Dude, it's beyond freaky. And the question, and this really boils down to one of the central tenets of science, which is that by observing something, you can learn about it. Mm. Nowhere in there did it ever say that by observing something, you change it. Yeah. But that seems to be what the case. What triggered the double slit experiment in your mind? Uh, the fact that some of the things that we think we take for granted uh, right. may not be exactly law. All right, I need to ask you about diet real fast. And I yeah. think you mentioned earlier something acid, citric acid, Celtic acid. The citric something. acid cycle? Citric acid. Yeah. Uh, that that has implications in terms of meat. That Oh, sialic acid. Sialic? Yes. There we go. Yeah. So um, let's put it, you like to get technical probably more than any other interviewer that I've ever said. So I'll, we'll get technical. I'll, we'll do that. There, if on the cell surface of, of the cell uh, are proteins, and then imagine my arms. Because you're a vegetable forward guy, or are you full vegetarian? I'm vegetarian. I didn't used to be. Um, I used to eat meat. Because I'm really starting to experiment with plants. Good. Like yeah. hardcore. And this was another sort of brick in that wall of like, okay, this is really interesting. Yeah. Because so I come at the meat potentially problematic from the mTOR pathway, like you're in growth mode. You don't always want to be in growth mode, maybe when you're young, but as you get older, that's also sort of pro-tumor. And if there's only so many cycles that the body can run, it's probably better to not trigger growth mode and stay a little bit hormetically stressed. Yeah. And so that was one part that got me really intrigued. Then I heard you say what you're about to say. Yeah, so sialic acid. So if uh, on the cell surface of the cell, you've got proteins. Imagine that's my arm. Then you've got glycoproteins. Imagine that's the palm of my hand. On the very tip are things called sialic acids. Sialic acids are how the immune system sees cells first. It's the first fingertips, if you will. And in non-human animals, so all the mammals out there, basically, you know, cows, uh, pigs, sheep, all of that. They have two types of sialic acids. They have NU5GC and NU5AC. NU5GC, NU5AC. We'll just call them AC and GC. Those are the different types of sialic acids. There's two of them. They're only off by an oxygen molecule. So they're extremely similar, mm. but just a slight difference. Um, all of those animals have an enzyme that can convert NU5AC into NU5GC. That's how they make both of them. Humans, for some reason, when you look in our DNA and you look for that enzyme, it's there, but it's badly mutated. So we don't have that enzyme. So the only sialic acid that we put on our, on our cells is NU5AC. If you were to look at a human being that's never eaten meat before and you were to look at the sialic acids, it would be all NU5AC. The problem is, is that when we eat those, uh, those meats, and it could be grass-fed, it can be uh, organic, you, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's in the DNA of those animals that you're eating meat that has NU5AC and NU5GC both. Now, our body assimilates both of those into our blood. It doesn't get digested down into its components. It's about a nine carbon, nine carbon sugar. And the enzyme in our body that puts these silic acids onto our cells can't tell the difference between NU5AC and NU5GC. So essentially what happens is um, the more of these uh, new 5gc you eat the more new 5gc gets incorporated on your cell surface and is sticking out there now human beings don't are not naturally imbued with anti new 5gc antibodies but they develop within the first couple of years of life almost immediately after drinking uh, cow's milk or anything else you will develop as a human being antibodies against new 5gc hmm. 
There's a recent study. So your that was, body's looking for it to slap it around. Correct. It, it's 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 a foreign. It's considered foreign to the body now. Apparently, we had the enzyme. We don't now have the enzyme. Right. Now we consider new 5GC as a foreign material, and this is being put on the surface of our cells. And it's the thing that the immune system checks to make sure this is me. This is me. Correct. Exactly. So uh, there's a great study that was done out of France. I'm glad it was France because they looked at um, they looked at cheese, which is an animal product, and it has new 5GC in it, and they looked at meat. But what's interesting is that not all meats and not all cheeses have the same amount of GC in it. They call it the GC index, and they had a whole list. It was great. I think Roquefort was at the top. It had tons of GC in it, and then at the very bottom was like mozzarella, which had hardly anything in it. And so what they did was, because they knew the type of food and the type of meat that they were eating, they were able to do a very detailed survey where they asked uh, people in France uh, and around, what did you eat, how much of it, and how often? And they were able to cross-relate how much GC. So at the end of the day, they came up with, in a week, this is how much GC this person ate. In a week, this is how much this GC person ate. And then what they did was they drew blood on them, and they measured all of the GC antibodies, and there was this correlation, perfect correlation with how much GC you ate and how much GC autoimmune antibodies were circulating in your blood. Hmm. So we know that antibody plus antigen equals inflammation. So if you're looking for a way to ditch inflammation, this is potentially one of those ways. The reason why they were interested in looking at this, and there was a guy out of UC San Diego by the name of Varky, who's really interested in this. He's published a lot of papers on this is there's this debate in, uh, in dietary circles. Is it processed red meat that's the big problem or is it just red meat in general? And this has gone back and forth. There's been a number of United States epidemiological studies that say both are the problem. And there's been, there was this big study that was done in Europe called EPIC, the European something something study that showed, no, it's just processed meats that's the bad thing. The red meat we didn't see any connection with. Well, um, the, the studies have been done now, and, it, and I think they're coming to the conclusion. In fact, there was a study that was just done last year, the UK Biobank study. Huge study, half a million people. They saw the issue with both. So what is it about red meat particularly that's causing atherosclerosis, that's causing coronary artery disease? Is there something in there? And they believe this may be one of the things that explains that, mm -hmm. is that red meat particularly causes increased atherosclerosis. You know, people uh, talk about, well, we've been eating Because meat. Yeah. our own immune system is attacking the cell because we have the new five. GC. GC there. Yeah. Which the, whatever puts it in place can't tell the difference, but we have developed a, an immune response to it. Yes. So we're getting chronic inflammation in the exactly. blood cells, essentially. Exactly. And, and, you know, right here in Southern California, there was a big study that was done about 10 years ago called the Adventist Health Study 2 where they took you know, very homogeneous people, because there was, a, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of these studies where they're like, well, vegetarians, they're health conscious, they don't smoke, of course they're gonna live longer. So they tried to eliminate that. The Adventist uh, population, they don't smoke, they don't drink, um, they're pretty upwardly mobile, a lot of healthcare people, they're health conscious. But when you looked at this population, about half of them ate meats. So it's a perfect type of population to study, mm -hmm. because you've, you've taken out of the context all of those variables. So when they, when they looked at them and they did it, it was like a 10 year follow-up survey. Wow. You had non-vegetarians, you had pesco-vegetarians, you had lacto-ovo-vegetarians, and you had vegans. 
And you were able to see in a beautiful stepwise function that BMI went up as you went from vegan to non uh, uh, to, to non vegetarian, and that even when you took BMI out of that, so like so let's say some people are eating more calories. If you took calories out of it, you took BMI out of it, that calorie for calorie, BMI for BMI, there was less risk for diabetes, less risk for hypertension in the vegan group compared to the uh, non-vegetarian group. Hmm. So there's something there. Man, the, the other thing I was going to mention too, we talked about carbohydrates, uh, simple carbohydrates and how they feed through the, the, the Krebs cycle and they cause a lot of this uh, oxidative stress. So this is the reason why I believe that you know people who like to juice or drink a lot of juices, this is this is this is carbohydrates that are going through very quickly. You know, should we do juicing as opposed to just eating whole fruits? Whole fruits are complex with fiber. Mm. When you eat them, it slowly releases the carbohydrates. It slowly releases that energy, doesn't overflood the system, and you're able to get those carbohydrates through the system more evenly, more distributively, so you don't get the oxidative stress that you normally get, as opposed to people, you know, donuts and soft drinks and all these things. It's just basically, it's a, it's a throughput. Mm. Man, this has been a lot of fun. I've watched a lot of your content. It's amazing. Where can people find you? At, uh, well, we're on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, MedCram, uh, MedCram videos. Uh, and we're also on the web at uh, medcram.com. You can also follow us on Twitter as well. Guys, your help matters, man. Dive in, learn about this stuff. I find that the more that you really understand what's going on, the more applicable it becomes to your life. You understand how all of this stuff is interconnected. You get why sleep is important and you can start to predict things. And that to me is the real key. That's why I drag you guys into the weeds. Uh, because if you understand how it works, you can predict it. All right, speaking of things that will help you understand how it works, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.